Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And this is The Food Fight, a frank discussion of food culture featuring Australia's top chefs, producers, and experts. We'll chat about real issues and go places others won't. This podcast travels throughout the country, and we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and speak. And we pay respect to elders, past, present, and emerging. This episode, we're speaking with Paul West. You'll know him best from the TV show, The River Cottage Australia. We talk to him about his experience in the hospo world, working at Voudemont in Melbourne, and about where hospo culture is going now. And we talk about his transition to becoming a TV host, a gardener, a small-scale farmer, and an advocate for produce growing, home cooking, and participating in a local food community. Yeah, I mean, basically, we can just start talking. But um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, okay. we'll, we'll go through, we'll go through, we'll go through like a bit of stuff because I think that there's a lot about you and a lot about your career that some people don't like, don't really know. Like, I think people sort of know you as the guy from River Cottage and the guy that now. Um, you know, does cookbooks and and likes to likes to garden in his home garden. And podcast is pretty hospo centric. And so, yeah. like, people don't like people don't sort of know you as as ex Voudemont like fine dining <laughs> chef Paul like, West because just that fun, just that farm guy. You know, yeah, they they kind of. I don't think I ever wore chef whites once. Yeah. Uh, on River Cottage, thankfully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've still got I've still got a set buried in the bottom of the wardrobe. Do you ever think come out? Uh every now and then when I get invited to do a, a collaboration dinner with a with a good kitchen, uh, you know, or somewhere that that still wears whites. Yeah. You know, I like to make sure I dust them out as respect to the kind of staff and venue there, rather yeah, than just cool. kind of show up in my classic like shorts and t-shirt with an apron on over the top. Yeah. Um <laughs> No, but I feel like that, you know, since I was cooking in the fine dining scene that there has been a little bit of a casualization of it a little bit. Like it's kind of, we've kind of gone away from that white tablecloth notion of fine dining that I worked in, you know, that kind of pointy end, French inspired, European inspired, you know, Voudemont, you know, really upper echelon of food uh, to, you know, I really, in, in, I guess I experienced it most relevantly in Melbourne when I was kind of living there after working at Voudemont where, the chefs all look like they kind of work in a cafe it's all t-shirts and Mm. quite casual but it's actually a two-hat restaurant you know you can kind of walk in there and you feel like oh am i going to get eggs benedict here am i going to get a seven course feed with matched wines Mm. 
and you kind of got that great, you know, that kind of bar-like experience. And, I, you know, I feel like that that is the Australian contribution to fine dining in a way that we inherited that European sensibility, you know, because we didn't have the culture for it ourselves here where we're like, okay, well, this is how they do it in the old world. It's all, you know, big regal venues and, you know, silver service and stuffy waiters and all that kind of stuff. But now I feel like that it's reached a maturation in Australia where, where people want they want the food of that caliber, but they want it a little bit more casually, you know. They 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 want a, a, a bit more of a relatable floor service and an accessible wine list, but they want that, you know, not not necessarily the prestige, but the you know the the option of having something really good there and being guided by someone who knows what they're doing. And and I think that's been really amazing to watch unfold here in Australia. And and I think also like it's they've had to. I guess, adapt and evolve the industry to be able to appeal to, to the hospitality workers as mm. well. I mean, it's, I, I think the only reason I survived in that kind of world is because I'm stupid and stubborn, you know, because there's, I saw plenty of people, you know, come up for the first day trial thinking that that's where they wanted to work. And then would kind of, you know, because they were on trial, there was no, commitment and they'd leave before lunch service you know they've been there before for four hours prepping and that was enough for them to see that oh i don't think i'd want to do this for five days a week you know 90 hours a week for the rest you know for the next couple of years because it's i mean you've you've really got to want to be in a place like that like it's Mm. it's hyper competitive it's it's high 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 stress it's low remuneration you know and you kind of get swept along in that culture and excitement um but it's certainly not for everyone and i think you know i was kind of working in Vudamon when the first couple of seasons of master chef came out you know and i think that a lot of people felt like they wanted to dabble in being a chef not a master chef but an actual like oh, i think i could do high-end hospitality and uh the the kind of the crash landing that they had when you know, the, they thought they got treated badly on a reality TV show. <laughs> wait, wait till you get into a, you know, a, a kitchen without cameras, you know, it's, mm. uh, with some sort of like third generation French chef who's uh, <laughs> on, you know, on the war path. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think I realized that it wasn't for me pretty early on in the piece, but I also made the realization that, that you to, to have said that you've worked in places like that, you've, you've got to stick it out for a while. You can't just go and work there for a month and go, I worked at Vunamon, you know, because it's they, no one even knew your name after a month because mm. the staff turnover was so high. What, what brought you there in the so first I, I place, though? Well, so, okay, so I was, I mean, what drew me to the hospitality or the kitchen trade in the first place was I was a bit of a, you know, a young late teens, early 20s vagabond and like kind of just traveled around Australia doing odd jobs here and there. Um, and, you know, I kind of and had experienced how difficult it is to get meaningful employment without a trade or a, a degree because mm. uh, I had neither of those. And just it always, you know, kind of it was always menial work or, or kind of, you know, high turnover, low pay, poor condition work. And I was working in Newcastle as a kitchen hand for a mate and he's kind of apprentice chef walked out and I was uh, in one service. I was like, oh, I could do this. Why don't you put me on as your apprentice? And he thought that was a great idea because I was a casual kitchen hand getting paid 25 bucks an hour. So I could, so he's like, oh, yeah, I'll put you on as a first-year apprentice. No yeah. worries. And all of a sudden, my pay went down to five bucks an hour. Yeah. Uh, so I was working kind of five times as much uh, and getting paid exactly the same. But um, 
but then when I was on the dining strip in, in Newcastle in Cooks Hill there on Derby street. And there was, um, word got around that like a kind of ex Michelin chef had, uh, had moved onto the strip and his parents actually owned a kind of all day, seven day a week breakfast, lunch, dinner style cafe restaurant. And he had come back from England, uh, having been a head chef, Marco Pierre White at Mirabelle and, uh, and had just come back a kind of wreck, you know, kind of like alcoholic, like drug habit. And so the parents brought him up to, you know, like, we'll set you up, you know, there's an apartment upstairs, you live there, you cook in our restaurant while you, you know, kind of get your life back on track. And so I was went, oh, wow, what an opportunity to go and work with someone that had, you know, worked in London at the highest end of, you know, of, of fine dining in Europe and in the UK. And I went and worked with him and, you know, we'd kind of, I was the apprentice and he was the chef and he'd be kind of filling my head with these tales of the, the world of fine dining, you know, that little bit of, you know, kind of like an oral um, kitchen confidential, you know, mm-hmm. that, that classic text <laughs> from Anthony Bourdain that sets so many apprentices on that path of rock and roll, uh, you know, cooking uh, and kind of hearing about, the pressure and the prestige and the, the kind of team cohesion and the, all the crazy stuff that happens at that top end. And he, um, so I was like, Oh, well, I think I, mm, maybe I'd have a tilt at the fine dining world. And he kind of unraveled after six months and left and went back to Sydney. Uh, and I thought, well, there, I tried to get a job at a hatted restaurant in Newcastle, but at that, at that time, Newcastle's fine dining scene was very, very narrow and there wasn't the opportunity to do so. And I wasn't too keen on living in Sydney uh, just because I realized that, that at that time, re- uh, you know, fine dining restaurants are very centralized around the CBD. And I felt that it would be very difficult for me to live close mm. to the CBD in Sydney. So I thought, oh, I'll go to Melbourne. It's a little bit more, you know, a little bit more accessible to get to the CBD. You can live a bit closer because of the, you know, the way the city's structured. And so, I mean, this is before you know, kind of internet or really like comprehensive internet. It wasn't before internet, sorry, but before comprehensive kind of web presence. Mm. And so I went and ordered a copy of the age good food guide because we only had the Sydney morning Herald one in New South Wales yep. and started at the front and it was the top restaurant at the time was Voodamon. And I, um, you know, I kind of sent this, sent them this kind of like groveling, you know, application going, Oh, you know, thanks so much for the time. I'm a first year apprentice chef. And, I'd, you know, really love the opportunity to come and, you know, have a trial at your, at your restaurant. And they kind of got back to me within two hours, you know, because <laughs> what I didn't realize at the time was just how, um, how constantly desperate they were for staff at a place like that, because the conditions were so hard and the turnover was so high that they were just yeah. always looking for fresh flesh for the fire. So um, as a first year apprentice, I kind of funneled a week's worth of my wages into a return flight to Melbourne and uh, overnight you know, overnight accommodation at a hostel up in Fitzroy and, uh, and, you know, flew down, uh, foolishly had never flown to Melbourne before, booked a ticket to Avalon. Of course. Thinking, oh, this is classic. a bit cheaper, you know, yep. classic mistake. Yeah. You know, so then, then I was into an extra hundred dollars each way for a taxi ride. So I kind of spent a week and a half worth of income uh, on this journey. And, you know, I, 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 got the taxi into Flinders street and, and kind of did, I knew where the restaurant was. And so I did the walk down little Collins street and kind of went past the famed red doors of the old bank building there, Voodamon. And that it was, you know, they, they weren't in service cause that was a Monday, but kind of sat there and took a moment, took a breath and be like, Oh, tomorrow, well, here we go. I'm coming in here. This is a bit out of my comfort zone. And then, uh, you know, rocked up the next morning and was just was slingshotted into a, 
a world that I had just zero point of reference for. You know, it's I'd been working on a you know pretty casual dining strip in Newcastle. You know, where it was an open kitchen, pretty much on the street. Your mates walk past. There was maximum three people in the kitchen. People were stopping and chatting. And you know, I walked in at eight a.m., which is generally the time that the kitchen would fire up in this place. And there was like twenty chefs and first prep session back after Saturday night service. So everyone's in the shit and it was just heads down, bum up, like hostile, you know, like, or not, not warm, not, not, not openly hostile, but like no one has got any, not a second to help you, you know, you're like, oh yeah, another new guy. Awesome. All right. You sort yourself out, mate. Please don't ask me any questions because I'm too busy to hold your hand. Mm. And I remember the head chef kind of walking me up to the upstairs change room and getting into my whites and thinking, man, like I, I should probably just like sneak out the back alley and never come back. Like, I don't think this is going to be for me. Uh, and yeah. And just, but you know, I like, no, no, no. I've like, I've kind of spent a, what to me at the time was a small fortune on getting here. And, and so I went down and, you know, and just was plunged into the deep end and uh, I did the lunch service in the VU kitchen and the, the dinner service in the bistro kitchen. And then, you know, I did my first 16 hour days on, you know, on my feet in the kitchen and, uh, and kind of didn't breathe through my nose, like panted the whole time, had this like crusted lip and these like, you know, <laughs> eyes like this and, uh, flew home the next morning kind of going, what the hell just happened? And then, you know, I got a call straight away that obviously I was, you know, just past muster <laughs> to be able to, and they're like, well, you know, we, okay, you got the job. And I'm like, well, I live in Newcastle and I've got a job. <laughs> uh, they're like, we need you to start ASAP. And I'm like, well, you need to give me like two weeks and they're like, that's it. You know, if you can't be in here in two weeks, forget it. And so, you know, the restaurant that I was working at kind of knew that was on the cards and I packed up my life, drove down, you know, kind of drove the 12 hours from Newcastle to Melbourne and was in the kitchen, you know, the next morning. Do it. Where'd you I stay when you first got there? Did you have a place? Or uh, there anything? Luckily, Luckily, there's kind of a well-trodden migration path between Newcastle and Melbourne. There's yeah, a, okay. I think a lot of Newcastle kids prefer the vibe of Melbourne than yeah, Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I was lucky that I, in my kind of extended social network at New, through Newcastle, I've landed in a share house straight away. Oh, so easy. Oh, actually, it was there was a, actually there was about a, like a, a month period where they were waiting. They knew one housemate was going to move out, so. I just kind of slept on the lounge room floor, which was, you know, you're doing 16 hour you days, do. nine, 90 hours a week, and you're sleeping on a mattress on the floor in a lounge room. And but I mean, it's that sounds like it's a little bit crude uh, in terms of accommodation, but when you're when you're up at seven and straight onto a tram into the city, and you're home at half past twelve, and you're straight into bed, doesn't matter. And you know, you never you never sleep as well as you do after a big 16 hour day. Oh, no. You know, you just yeah. kind of like you just. You just fall into that mattress on the good days. Anyway, sometimes you like hit the mattress and you're so wired from, you know, from two services and adrenaline and too much coffee and too many cigarettes that you're just like lying there like this, yeah. you know, especially if you're in the shit the next day because your, your brain, the last thing you think about is your me's on plus list. Yeah, exactly. You're already thinking about morning, what? you know, because yeah. you're already going, oh, how am I going to get all that done before? For lunch service like structuring i need to get that pan i need to get that on i just remember like waking up most days and just going fuck <laughs> you know, just lying in bed going oh no like the things i've got to get done in the next couple of hours 
fuck. <laughs> I don't know if this is like a M-rated podcast where it people is. can swear. You but can if, it's, swear. if it's hospitality focused, <laughs> it is. Step by assume there's a uh, colorful language involved. So, and yeah, that was um that was such a, a wild, wild. How long did you spend time. there? Two years, yeah, two years. and two years was kind of the minimum to have existed. You yeah. know, in that in that environment, anything under two years, and you weren't, you know, you you you're just another number essentially. Yeah. Um, did um but- did like we talk to a lot of people on this podcast, like a lot of people who you know run restaurants and as like high level chefs and things like that, and people who like your story of starting beginning in hospitality, starting as a kitchen hand somewhere, and and all of a sudden someone leaves and you're you know on the pans or chopping stuff or prepping or whatever. That's like the most common chef story yeah. out there. Yep. Did you, yep. did you like, like, and, and now we talk to people, obviously you're not in hospital anymore, but we talk to a lot of people who sort of, they still love the, the hospital life. You know, they love yeah. the pressure. They love the environment. Camaraderie is a, a word that comes up so yep. much. Did you, did you get into that that sort of life at the time? Like, was it, did, oh, you, did you love man, the hospo scene in Melbourne and all that? Yeah. Oh, man. It was like, and, you know, like working at a restaurant like Vudamon was like having the baggy green cap, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it was like, it was like you played for the national side. Yeah. You know, so it's like at, at when when we knocked off and went out into the city, it was like there was no hospo door that was kind of closed to us. Mm. You know, it was like, oh, here come the Voodamon crew. Like, these guys are fine. Let them in. You know, they're, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like, oh, we're closed to punters. You know, it's where the door shut. Oh, no, here come, you know, here come these guys. We'll make cocktails till 3 a.m. in the morning, whatever. You know, mm. <laughs> that's, uh, and I mean, that the, the camaraderie, you know, it is a often used trope when we talk about hospitality, but for good reason, you know, because it's when you, when you are in that environment, if you don't have that camaraderie, it's, it's so difficult. And when you're working like 90 hours a week, you know, you don't have a social life. Your workmates are your life. You know, they're the people that you spend pretty much every waking hour with. And, and it's that, you know, uh, my favourite part about it and, and what really contributes to that camaraderie is just the, the calibre of banter, you know. Like mm. it was uh, just being able to like wit with people all day, you know. And, um, but then again, sometimes it was, I mean, my head chef when I was there was like, if you can talk, you're not working, you know, like, yeah. yeah so okay. you really had like time for very brief quips, you know, mm. oh, that was about it. There was no like, oh, what'd you get up to on the weekend? Or what are you doing? You know, what do you think about this? It was like, yeah, if your mouth was moving, you weren't chopping fast enough. Oh, that's, other words, that's tough. Yeah, you can't was, restrict the banter, mate. One yeah. of the best things yeah, is, yeah. is prepping and talking. Like that's what yeah. makes prep yeah, yeah, time yeah. fun is being yeah. able to chat. But he, but he was right, you know, in a way that it yeah. was like, it was, it was, it was ballistic, this place. Yeah, like, okay. and it, you just like, it was unbelievable the, the the kind of drive that you had to summon in able to be because you know we just like we had a comprehensive a la carte menu in the bistro, which is where I ended up spending most of my time there, and uh, and like we just made everything from scratch like there was multiple sources from scratch pre service and you know you know we filleted fish fresh every day everything was cooked from scratch to order you know uh, and um, so that that took a, a significant burden but I mean that there was a culture, you know, and there was that kind of camaraderie that came from that, that realized that, yeah, this is a tough job. Yeah. You're not getting paid much, but, but you're at the pointy end of what, of this 
craft. Mm. You know, you're you're on the A grade side. You're on the national squad. You mm. know, like yeah, you you. This isn't for everyone, but if you can do it, you're here. You know, mm. and you're doing the good stuff. Um, and yeah, that's I guess that's how they keep people engaged. You know, because it's otherwise it's if you couldn't get in, couldn't get behind that mindset about going. Well, actually, I'm at the pointy end of this industry. Then you just you wouldn't be able to do it, you know. Yeah. Like you, you, the, the the conditions were so difficult and challenging that you know most people couldn't do it. And I know that, you know, that I feel like there is an evolution in the industry now where it seems like they're like head chefs and owners are like that's kind of like a dying practice. That mm. that you know that old school British European uh, British slash French style Marco Pierre White Gordon Ramsay style where. If you're not doing 90 to 100 hours a week and you're not suffering and you're not, you know, you're not giving every waking moment to your life as a chef, then you're not even a chef, you know. Mm. It feels like, thankfully, that there's been a bit of a corner turned on that. You know, you look at um, the the work of um, Ben Shuri and, you know, the Attica guys and the kind of lifestyle that he creates for his chefs as well, where there's education there's free time there's time to sit down and enjoy a meal like <laughs> our staff meals at vu for the bistro chefs anyway like there'd be a communal staff meal at five but our service started at 5 30 and you know you'd have a plate and uh like the, there was no time to eat it was the one meal that you had a day there was no lunch break there was no anything like that and you know you're just getting your first orders in the second you've kind of put food on your plate and so I just used to like put as much in my mouth as I could, like one <laughs> giant mouthful looking like some sort of chipmunk getting ready for the winter and cook the first 15 minutes of, you know, the dinner service masticating this mouthful <laughs> of dinner just to just so I got something, you know, just yeah. so there was some sort of food in my mouth. But, you know, I've got <laughs> still got good mates that I worked with there that I'll be friends with for life, you know, because yeah. of the because of the kind of shared trauma, yeah. I guess, that we, that we went through. It's kind of like, you know, I imagine what it's like down at the RSL club, you know, on Anzac Day where we get together and we're like, oh, remember that? Oh, no. remember that? <laughs> exactly. And, um, but, yeah, no, there is, and, yeah, and that, but that notion of the hospitality culture as well where we'd go out and, uh, you know, if we did have a rare day off or a rare Friday night off, you'd go and eat at a contemporary, you know, a, a contemporary mm. de You'd eat at another, like, you know, high-end hatted restaurant and, You'd go into the kitchen and you'd talk to the chefs and they'd welcome you in there and you'd chat about the dishes and you'd chat about the mise en place and you'd chat to the floor staff about it. And it was, it was a really, you know, it was a tight, at the top end, it was a pretty tight knit club. You mm. know, I think everyone kind of had that sense of universal, you know, or a bit of solidarity of the difficulties of working in high end dining. And I think, you know, we all tried to look out for each other and, soft you know just go well there is some you know silver linings to this kind of stuff and it is that you know there is a culture here and it is a community and where you look after each other so that was good that yeah was nice. do you still do you still keep in touch what's in what's going on in sort of hospo in australia the new places that are not, opening not hugely i don't yeah. think i like i mean i'm not I, and and that's probably because of like the stage of life and like the physical location of where i live now you know because i because I, um, uh, you know, live on the far south coast, so I'm kind of three hours from Canberra, five from Sydney, eight from Melbourne. Like I'm quite far removed from that, you know, that kind of the pointy end of the fine dining world. And 
and also, you know, um, it's the far south coast is no northern rivers, you know, like we don't have kind of hatted mm. restaurants, you know, in little old buildings dotted around the place. Like it's, that's just not like that where we are, which is totally fine. Like I, I love it. And um, also I've got two young kids. I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old. So that, that kind of, you know, going out for dinner at a nice restaurant is just not something that we do at the mm. moment. But like, I think I maybe not like in terms of individual you know, individual restaurants, what's happening there, openings and closings or, or who is the kind of on-trend chef at the moment. But I think, like, I do try to keep in touch with the more macro trends because usually, like, I find that that because chefs uh, are so creative and, and so engaged and so knowledgeable uh, about food that they, they are often the culture leaders that, that where chefs you know, especially the really good ones, the really innovative ones where they're pointing their knowledge is often where we're kind of headed more broadly uh, as a, you know, as a society. And I think I'm like, I'm really enjoying the kind of the, the, the moment of the, the multicultural food in Australia. Like it's always had a presence, but now it's really, you know, kind of brought to the fore that we're celebrating, you know, the intricacies and the unique nature of, of, the, of the various migrant communities and the cuisines that, that make up the diverse Australian population. Uh, you know, I'm loving following that continued conversation around Indigenous foodstuffs and I love that now it's kind of turned full circle and it's now not so much about like a chef putting it on their menu, but it's more about Indigenous-owned, Indigenous-led organisations, you know, that coming to the forefront uh and and then also i like i guess if there's one that i'm really watching with interest at the moment it's what yost and matt stone and mm. and um uh mental blank um matt's lovely partner joe oh, so embarrassing joe barrett joe, joe barrett, joe barrett. Yeah. i'm so sorry joe if you listen to this <laughs> podcast you're actually my favorite out of those three people uh, i love you too <laughs> matt and yost but joe you're such a legend um total mental blank sorry uh and the future food systems i think mm. you know i think what those guys are doing there it is so innovative and matt and joe are such you know such pillars of the hospitality community you know they've They've been on the scene since they were babies, you know, and they've mm. been at the forefront since they were just fresh-faced 20-year-olds. And to see them continue to, to innovate and continue to have that presence in the hospitality and, and be continuing to drive that innovation and culture, I mean, they're just such an inspiring trio, you know, mm. and obviously Yost brings his design, you know, now to that as well. And the, the things that they're doing there with the idea of like a, a house that produces its own food, you know, as well as having a very kind of small ecological footprint, I think what they're doing is like is 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 relevant on a global stage. Yeah, you know, it's and if amazing. you can do it in Australia, yeah, you know, and if we can do it here in one of the tougher kind of climates on the planet, you know, Melbourne goes. It's you know, anyone that's been to Melbourne in summer knows that those kind of blasting northerly forty-five degree days are enough to you know, kind of like take the life out of anything, but also you get those freezing, drizzly winter days. So if you can kind of create a, a food garden and a house that, that is comfortable to live in and also creates a unique cuisine of, of that singular dwelling, then I, it's just so inspiring. And, you know, Matt and Joe, their, their knowledge of food preparation is just so mm -hmm. deep that they can take, you know, quite obscure ingredients that we might not be familiar with that, happen to you know thrive in that that kind of cultural environment and turn them into things that you that are of that fine dining standard so yeah i think we'll see that i think we'll see what they're doing 
well, I certainly hope that I will see what they're doing trickle down to a, a more broader conversation in the coming decade. Mm. It's it's amazing. Have you been down there? I haven't had the pleasure yet. Yeah, neither. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah. Keen. I'm so keen. There I'm not like, look, I, I, they're living there, right? Yeah, yeah. I think they live in the house. Right? Yeah. So, they're so cool. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely yeah. going to be like, I've had the pleasure of interviewing them both a couple of times over the years or doing various events with them. So next time I'm in Melbourne, I'm going to be like, oh, hey, Matt and Joe, remember me? <laughs> can I yeah. come and see the <laughs> can I come and see the future food system? It's like, yeah, yeah no, it's so but it's, awesome. It's fascinating because, yeah, it's like, um, I mean, sort of in a sense, it's like what you do, but everything is pushed to that fine dining level. It's like yeah. Westie's growing yeah, yeah, veggies yeah. and, and yeah. you know, building building things in the backyard and trying to make the most of space and things like that and then making these approachable recipes that yeah that you know that everyone can everyone can create and it's this approachable level but it's like it's like when you go to a fine dining restaurant you go there because you can't cook it at home but yeah. if you want to produce fine dining food out of a kitchen garden and and all that sort of stuff a lot of the time you need you need unique practices on the on the production side as well as the yes. the cooking side and so it's just fascinating yeah. when that's pushed to the extreme and it ends up in these plates of food that would belong in any you know regional fine dining restaurant sort of thing yeah and yeah. the fact that it's all coming out of that one place is just phenomenal like what a what a it's vision and what a yeah and, and i mean i guess what my my kind of conversation is around that kind of a little bit more suburban tilt where people have got that, you know, a little bit of a yard and a little bit of space and, you know, they can have a couple of veggie beds. And what I love about what, you know, the future food system is doing is that it's, it's CBD. Yeah. You know, it's, it's smack bang. It's, it's, it's the, it, you couldn't get more urban than what they're doing in it. You know, it kind of removes that notion from the conversation that, you know, you have to be able to have a plot of your own land and I also love that it's like it's also all quite modular because then that engages renters in the conversation as well that, you know, because mm. I know that many people, you know, are renting and, and that can be quite difficult or, or heartbreaking, you know, to be a rental gardener because sometimes you put all that work in and, mm. and you know, and you kind of develop a, a little garden and then the lease is up and, and they, you know, the, the landlord wants it back as a patch of Kai like it was, you know, when, uh, when you first moved in. But, you know, I... I think that 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 notion of of the kind of home economy, you know, it was always home ec was such a daggy subject. You know, it was kind of a bludge subject at school for mm. us, and you know, it was either like the only guys that I knew do it were only trying to do it to like pick up girls, and you know, there was like you'd never find a guy doing home ec because he loved cooking, you know, or mm. anything like that. But but really, I think like it, I wish we could destigmatize it because that notion of being able to prepare your own food or being able to make your own cleaning products from scratch about being able to, you know, kind of look after yourself uh, is just this notion of it's disappearing. It feels like. And, and if you, I, I would really like to see food growing kind of added into that conversation around, around home economy, you know, where at least knowing how to grow a small salad garden, you know, or a small, a couple of herbs in pots. Like it's, I, I forget sometimes, you know, as someone who's, you know, always a learner gardener. I think we all are for always, but someone who's probably a little bit further down the garden path than a lot of people, their level of assumed knowledge that comes with, you know, when you're around gardening conversations and in particular, I find gardening literature as well. I find so many gardening books are written for gardeners, mm. you know, like it's uh, if you, if you don't have any sort of knowledge around food growing and you kind of pick up a gardening book, you're like, 
what are they talking about in here? You know, like what, where do I even begin with this? So that was always my desire in the books that I write that have a gardening component to be able to go, well, if you've never gardened before, don't worry. Like it's, you know, you're not, it's not going to be awesome the first time, you know, you're not going to have like some, you know, incredible market garden, you know, things will probably look a little bit damaged or wilty or, you know, but you, you, you'll get there, you know, like it's the first couple of seasons, you know, you've just got to accept that you'll make a few mistakes and things might not work. But even if you just get one thing that you grew from scratch that you get to, you know, take into the kitchen and, and, you know, and, and, and cook with yourself, your family, your friends, I mean, that, that's if you can get to that point, if you can get to that point of experience where you planted something, you've nurtured it through to harvest and then you cook it and then you eat it with people that mean, you know, that are important to you. If you can just get that experience once, that's the hook. You know, mm. if you can just do that once then experience that once, then I think that, that people go, wow, this is actually something quite meaningful and powerful and, and, and it wasn't that difficult and, uh, and it's accessible. You know, I love that about food and, and that kind of holistic notion of food production and cooking together that, uh, that it's kind of a quintessential human desire and experience, you know, that we that we've lived with for, you know, we've lived so close to our food for the bulk of human history. And now it's such a modern phenomenon for people not to be engaged in that food production process. And, you know, and first, first it was the food production that fell by the wayside. Now it's actually food cooking that's similarly going by the wayside, you know, and there so many people now, you know, apartments that don't even have kitchens, you know, cause you're like, mm. <laughs> people just eat out or Uber, get Eats. Uber Eats. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I find that there's so much benefit beyond just the kind of black and white mm. of nutritious food that, that comes so many kind of psychological and physical benefits that you get from just engaging in, in food in some sort of meaningful, meaningful manner. And it's not, it's not elitist. It's not, you know, you don't need a million bucks. Like you don't, you know, anyone that has the desire and I mean, and a, a relatively small amount of time can, can, um, can in some way, you know, grow a bit of their friend. He's my mum's dog. <laughs> hello, Minnie. Hello. Cutie. You're going to say hello, Minnie. Look at hello. her. Oh, you're gorgeous. You're gorgeous. <laughs> so, yeah, like while we're on it, how, and obviously like getting to this point, now and having released multiple publications that teach people these things that you're talking about how much of a gardener were you before river cottage and how much of river cottage like how how did river cottage contribute to where you're at now and 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 this sort of philosophy yeah well i i Growing up, I wasn't a uh, a voluntary gardener i don't think, but I'm just at my mum's house now. And she, she's like a blue ribbon gardener. Yeah, right. You know, she's like her, wherever she has ever lived, she's just got, always had an amazing garden. Uh, and I mean, her dad was probably more of the old school that grew a lot of food as well. You know, so my grandfather, he grew, he kind of had the bit of both. He had the ornamental and the, the food and mum's gone down the more kind of purely ornamental path. And uh, so I guess I was always exposed to a culture of gardening uh, and to see what it took, you know, that the, the, the kind of, that there is a labor involved, but when you are a gardener, that labor is a joyous one, you know, it, to, it's work, but, you know, you're outside in your space and you, you know, you're kind of contributing to an ecology, to a local ecology, you know, that, that you are in a way, I guess the custodian of and the, and the guide for, um, depending on how you approach it, you know, it's, you're kind of working with this 
living, breathing organism uh, and you've kind of got maybe desires as a gardener, but, you know, a garden's got a mind of its own often. So, I mean, I, but I, I, I was just always the, you know, the muscle, the junior muscle, the, the mulch <laughs> spreader, you know, yep. it was, uh, so that was what gardening was to me as a kid, you know, it was like school holidays, four cubic meters of wood chips. There you go. <laughs> Make sure you spread that before, you know, before the end of next week, you know, yep, no, you can't play any computer games until you've spread that mulch out there, which, you know, in retrospect, I'm so grateful for, cause it's, you know, kind of got me out there and got me amongst gardening and, and then I kind of went on, you know, that 20s share house lifestyle where, you know, I wasn't hugely engaged in it because of that, you know, kind of cheap rental house, you know, share house, you know, everything's trashed kind of lifestyle. But uh, I always did have a small garden bed everywhere I went. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I always had a little bit of herbs, you know, or something, a couple of little pots of herbs somewhere. And then I moved to Tasmania, you know, with my wife, with my now wife just before we had you know, just before River Cottage. And I was at that stage, I was trying to transition out of kitchens uh, and into gardening, into like food gardening, market gardening. And that was, you know, the kind of something that was happening concurrently with, with my application for River Cottage. I was kind of looking at sites and trying to wrap my head around, you know, how could I do that? And, you know, we'd bought our first little house down on the South Arm Peninsula and I was in the process of kind of, you know, getting fruit trees in and, keeping chooks and always at that kind of urban scale. So, I mean, River Cottage really, uh, really took me to that small farm landscape scale uh, and really, I think, gave me the first time in my life where I could kind of concentrate on gardening and, and you know, and not have to do it as a, a kind of side hobby uh, because, you know, I was kind of getting paid to be there and do it. Yeah. So that was, that was amazing. Um, and, uh, but I think what I, the realization that I came from River Cottage was that, you can't, it was kind of selling a dream, you know, it was like, it was, there was a real aspirational quality to it. Uh, that was, that was quite out of reach for a lot of people. Like a lot of people loved the program because it was this, you know, kind of simple country lifestyle that, that they may not, you know, may not have ever had, uh, you know, the chance to fulfill. Uh, and I, I guess I kind of found that a little bit disappointing that, you know, that, some people could do go and get their 20 acre hobby farm and engage with that. But for most people, they would just, you know, they'd have backyards or if they're, if they're lucky, you know, they may never mm. have that. Like it's, so I guess I was pretty keen to kind of transition into a space where it was a little bit more uh, accessible to people and a little bit more, uh, you know, something that they could actually enact in their own life rather than go, Oh, mm. wouldn't it be great to have pigs one day. But I think that my kind of big, takeaways from from river cottage were were that you know that kind of importance of building a community and a life around food you know and the ability that 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 it it had you know to to be able to foster a meaningful life uh in a relatively simple way but i i guess i'd kind of already been put on that path by through wolfing on in tasmania in my early 20s where i you know had the opportunity to kind of stay at as a guest or, you know, as a woofer on these farms that were doing the river cottage thing, they were small diversified hobby farms. They, you know, they had sheep and one milking cow and ducks and chooks and geese and an orchard and a veggie bed. And, and I'd, I'd kind of been exposed to that at a really pivotal time in my life in my early twenties and realized I'm like, wow, this is, this is quite powerful. You know, what, what this, what this lifestyle offers, you know, and it's quite powerful for kind of human and environmental and, and, and mental and community well-being. Like it's, 
there were so many kind of bows to it that I could just see, just kind of brought out the 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 best in people, or you know, kind of allowed people to to thrive. You know, it's the it's the mm. kind of you know lifestyle where you can really you know really feel good and be and be healthy so and i mean i think the other kind of lasting legacy obviously for me for river courage was the opportunity to have a platform to mm. be able to continue this communication you know it's uh so you know it's something that's kind of in a way i guess really set me up for the next who knows <laughs> who knows yeah. how long it's you know and maybe it's set me up for life or maybe it's set me up for this kind of chapter in life um, but to be able to then, you know, continue that conversation, continue to be able to contribute to, to food culture in Australia and in, in my own little niche way, I mean, it's something that I'd never take for granted, you know, it's always something that I feel very fortunate to have, to have been able to do. And, you know, it's, um, it was a, I, <laughs> it's just such a perennial program, you know, it's such a cult yeah oh, well I call, I call it a cult program. I it don't is. think anyone else actually calls it a cult <laughs> program, but I call it a cult club classic uh because it's you know we first shot in 2013 uh and last shot just before christmas of 2015 so you know the oldest river coders out there is kind of getting on eight and a half years old now and and i mean people still get in touch with me on a daily basis you know every really? day you know yeah, right. or whenever i go out or into a new community that i you know haven't been out in frequently or you know people just love it you know and i think there's so much and I think it's because it had such a good heart and a good ethos and it kind mm. of celebrated the good life that, you know, that, that just instantly resonates with people, you know, it's, uh, or maybe, maybe not everyone, but certainly for some people, that notion of, you know, that kind of simple, good country life where you're growing food, you're eating good food and you're a member of a community. It's, I think it's something that's deeply hardwired into us, you know, to, to want and to need. So yeah, no, it's been it's been amazing. Did you how much on the show? Like, did you have much of a say in production and what was next? Like, if you were like, I reckon, you know, I'd like to have a crack at X, Y, or Z. Like, I want to get pigs or goats or like yeah. whatever. Like, you have the opportunity to get in, like, have your say in what was next. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah absolutely. Awesome. Well, that, that that's kind of what I was there for, you know, uh, right. because I I had a lot of strong ideas around what how it would unfold, you know, and they, yeah, uh, they okay. kind of, I think they vetted that as a part of the application process. Sure. I mean, it was like the, you know, it was a, initially a written application and I wrote like a thesis, you know, <laughs> for like a, just did a total like mental dump on my kind of fantasy world of small farming. And, and I think they kind of knew that I was engaged and knowledge, like somewhat knowledgeable without being too experienced as to be an expert and kind of ruin that journey. And, and so that the beautiful thing about that process then was that the you know it was a very high value production River Cottage and and you know Foxtel who were the you know the the kind of owners of the franchise in Australia they they knew that it had to be done right and uh, they brought together a really you know top end team like it wasn't it was kind of some of the best operators in Australian television you know that, mm. that were working on it so they knew they knew how to make good TV. Uh, and I, but they knew nothing about small farming, you know? So, yeah. and then I knew I, my passion was that kind of the food component and the, and the, you know, the, the, the small farming component. And uh, so we, we just, we kind of, I said what I'd want to do and they'd say if it would work for TV or not. So it was, it was this kind of like dynamic conversation where there were some things where were like, oh, I'd love to do this. And they'd be like, well, you know, that'll take us a whole day to shoot that. 
uh, with a full crew and that'll cut down to like 20 minutes, you know, 20 seconds of, you know, of usable screen time in a 50 minute episode, you know, mm. like it's, that's interesting. Yeah. But it's not, you know, there's, there's not much to shoot there. Uh, and so it was kind of this constant dynamic conversation around what would work realistically for a small farm and what would, uh, what would work, you know, for television. And I mean, and sometimes they got their, in their head an idea about what they wanted to do. And I'd say, look, that's not going to work. You know, like that sounds great on paper, but in realist, like realistically, mm. like we, we, we will have to resource that uh, to maintain it, you know? And I mean, the really, like TV and small farming are like antithetical, you know, they, you know, small farming is about refining simple processes over a very long time. Yeah. Uh, whereas TV is about doing something new every 10 minutes, yeah. you know? And I, I, I feel like after four seasons, people are like, Oh, you know, when are we going to, why didn't it come back? Why didn't it come back? We'd love to see it again. But that was 32 hours of television that we made, which mm. was, you know, which was about four times more than the original river cottage made across all their series. Like, yeah, they, right. Wow. Cause they just, they did a whole lot of recuts. So like the, the original, the original, original River Cottage, the three seasons before they started doing recuts and campaigns, I think it was about nine hours worth. Whereas, yeah, you know, right. in, four, in three years, we'd created 32 hours. And it got to the point where, you know, if there was a season five, I would have had to be farming albino seagulls or something, you, yeah, know, yeah. To, you know, to have something else. Otherwise, it just would have been that, you know, which I was up for, but the the rehashing of the same process, the refinement, yeah. the improvement, you know, that slow incremental building of a quality system yeah. of you know and that's that's what farming yeah, is you know it's a, that's it i've like got friends in western australia they've got a thousand year plan for their farm you know like yeah. that does not translate to television <laughs> yeah, exactly. at all you know did, um, that's why we go, did, go. did they always have tilba like did they have tilba picked before you got on board and that sort of thing like because yeah, it just seems like the, it, yep. Like the location was just perfect in terms of the yep. food community down there and the yep. types of people that are around and the growers that are already down there and the sage farmers markets and all that sort of thing. What a spot for it, you know? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was so, so prime. Like I think like initially the, obviously the first thought would be Tasmania, but mm. you know, the gourmet farmer, Matt Evans um, had been doing an amazing job down there for some years at that stage. So that was kind of stricken off the list. Um, and then, you know, they, they kind of struck and had to be in New South Wales because that's where the broadcaster was, that's where the production house was. And so they, they kind of just started inching out from Sydney south uh, to find somewhere that kind of struck a balance between economy of being able to buy the property in the first place and still yeah. having a, a food culture. I think initially they were kind of looking around the Berry area, like Berry was yeah. kind of very high on the radar. But I think, you know, for a beautiful farm style property around Barry, even then heaven knows yeah. what it'd be worth now, you know, yeah. that, that was, it was a little bit out of the production budget. And so they just kept edging their way down and Tilba came up on the radar and, you know, I, I spoke to the, um, the, the kind of executive producer at the time. Well, you know, we're, you know, we're still in contact now and spoke to him, you know, years after about what it was like when they first went to Tilba and it was a really good year and, if you've ever driven to that farm in, in Tilba, like you kind of drive along, you skirt along the edge of it like a small mountain and then it drops down and opens up, the country opens up and there's a big dam and you see the hill, you know, the house on the hill behind it. And, you know, it was a really good season and, you know, Gulaga kind of has this magic light about it anyway. And it was late afternoon and they said that they kind of came out into where the country opened up and saw the house and it was just like, 
That's it. Yeah. I yeah. just knew instantly. <laughs> yeah, right. <coughs> you know, they, it was just one of those moments where they knew, like, we've found it. Like, there's no, no yeah, doubt awesome. here whatsoever. We've got the property. And, yeah, so they, 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 they had done that. You know, they had, I think they had the whole crew. They had the house. They had property. And they didn't have the host. And that's where that's kind of where I came in through a through a classic mm. casting, you know. Like yeah. I, I, I had I've not I don't I don't watch that stuff, you know. I don't watch kind of like casting notifications on websites. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me, but they um a kind of family friend told me that they were looking for, you know, an Australian host for River Cottage, and I was very familiar with the UK one. I loved it. I loved Hugh mm. and and you know the work that he'd done with River Cottage. And so I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll apply for that. Sure, sounds yeah. good. Great, and the rest is history. Crazy. Um, let's let's <laughs> let's fast forward that. Like, I mean, I think you've done enough talking about River Cottage, you know, in other interviews, and people know the show, and people can go back and watch it and stuff. But when you finished up, and we were talking about this earlier, did you feel like, all right, I kind of know what I want to do now. Like, I want to use the platform that I've been provided to continue educating people about how to get involved in growing food and cooking nutritious food for their family and becoming a part of a food community? Or was there a moment where you're like, yeah. well, I'm this celebrity, you know, TV host now and shit, what's next? Like, Yeah, I mean, well, it was a really difficult time, actually. Like, it was after river coach because I, you know, I, I was at that farm seven days a week, you know, my first child was born when I was there, you know, it was, uh, I'd become a part of that community. Mm. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, the kind of rug had been pulled out from under my feet and, uh, I was cut adrift, you know, I was like, well, what are like, is this where I want to be? You know, like we didn't have a home. I didn't own house or anything at the time in the area. And, so the TV program was gone. So my primary income had gone, and you know I was like, "Oh, what do we do? Like, do I go back to working in kitchens?" Because that's it. Only kind of been three years out of you know my hospitality jobs. I was still you know very much a chef at that stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know I got some kind of good advice from people in the in the TV industry that were like, "Well, you you know you've probably you probably could pursue it a little bit more. You know, like you." you're kind of good at what you do. Uh, you're a good communicator. You've got an easy on-screen presence. So there's, you know, there's probably will, something will probably come through for you, but it was like a bit of a leap of faith, uh, you know, and I was lucky that with the kind of sinking in a way of Foxtel uh, talent drain uh, for a lot of their kind of back of house, senior, your senior channel and production staff to the ABC, you know, uh, and then that ABC kind of relished that because they got mm. this kind of massive boost in kind of talent for back of house and and a lot of those people kind of you know transitioned me into programs like backroads and catalyst you know they'd work with me on the lifestyle channel at foxtel and put my name forward for you know guest presenting you know i certainly i'm not sure that like i was certain that i was going to be able to continue a contribution at that kind of you know influencer national kind of stage but i think you know the beautiful thing about you know cooking and growing food and gardening is that it's it's a lifelong thing. It doesn't matter. Like I didn't, like, I, I don't think I was like, I cared too much, you know, about, you know, that the, the, there was that potential that post river cottage that I'd just kind of fade into obscurity. Like, where is he now type thing? Because I'd always be growing food and I'd always be cooking it. And I'd always be trying mm. to contribute in a community. I'm like, you know, I'm at my mum's house now 
you know, and I go got the box of old photos out and I kind of found an old newspaper clipping from the, the Hunter Post or something, the free newspaper that I'm not sure if it still runs up there now. And I was kind of, you know, at 20 years old in someone's garden, trying to help them make a permaculture garden, you know, in a backyard in Mayfield. Like, and they'd kind of taken a photo of that for the local paper. And I was like, I'd totally forgotten about it. And I was like, well, you know, that kind of was like, it was kind of a nice thing for me to see that like, it, this was it was kind of life changing the whole river coach experience of being thrust into that the spotlight like that. But it, my approach and my ethos hasn't really changed. That I've always kind of liked to do that kind of stuff anyway. And that you know, and the beautiful thing about it is that you know, should that kind of notion of kind of a platform or celebrity dry up, then you don't need that to do this stuff. You know, like you can still contribute in a really meaningful way in your own backyard or immediately in your own community. Mm. And I know it's like, so I'm pretty easy like that. Like I, you know, I've, I've, I've still got an agent, you know, and I have a chat to them and they're struggling over the last 12 months. And they're, you know, they're like, uh, they, they have a chat to me and they're like, you're like, you're fine. Right. I'm like, I'm totally fine. You know, because a lot of their kind of talent don't come from, they come from more the classic like fame driven sectors where it's mm. all about, you know, just like anything for the spotlight, you know, uh, and they're really struggling because there's not much going on at the moment. Whereas they're like, are you, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. Mm. I'm spending heaps more time in my garden. I'm here with my kids. I'm like, mm. I'm, you know, I've got enough money to live on. Like, it's <laughs> good. Yeah, exactly. Makes it easy when you don't, when you, when you don't actually just like want to be famous and want to be, no. you know, in the media as your job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, for my, ex- for my experience, exposure to that world you know that i certainly never feel like i've been an active participant maybe just like a consolation prize guest uh that the, the people that because if, if you're motivated purely by being in the spotlight mm. then what's where's your credibility you know where what what's your message you know if you're constantly shifting your message to just be in the spotlight then you kind of don't have a foundation of principle to be able to stand on and really that's the kind of thing that that makes you enduringly relevant. And I mean, that's why I was so grateful to be able to transition to work with the ABC and, uh, you know, because it's an organization where you can still maintain principle and you don't have to kind of do things for major sponsors and, you know, I've been able to continue that conversation there. It's been great. Mm. Tell me about the new book. Well, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but 26th of October, which is about, you know, four weeks from where we're talking now, I've got a new book coming out. It's called Homegrown. uh, And it's, it's basically like a journey through the garden over the course of the year. I, I kind of like imagined it as a, a four-part reference book. So, you know, no matter when you pick it up, you can just kind of turn to the season where you are relevantly and it'll talk about, you know, things to be planting in the garden now. It'll talk about things that if you're not planting your garden that are still available now that you can kind of be in season. Uh, it looks at recipes over the things that you're kind of harvesting in that season uh, jobs to do in the garden and a couple of little DIY projects that you can do relevant to that time of year, like, you know, kind of upcycling, you know, low fire jobs that you can do around the gardening or little garden tidy up jobs that people may need to do. So, and I mean, it's, it's, it's just been a pleasure to write, you know, it's, um, it's got, and I think it's kind of relevant as ever, you know, mm. because people, I certainly hope that this trend of kind of home economy of people gardening and cooking continues well after lockdown um, because, uh, you know, I certainly hope that that kind of notion of people working from home more and, and, you know, people being able to spend more time in their own home and put more energy into their own home continues because it's, I mean, it's such a, 
I, I think a critical part of a, a happy and healthy society to have people engaged with, in particular in the urban suburban sense, where you might be a little bit more removed from the, the natural world, where it's a little bit more built environment human to be able to kind of foster a, a little ecology of life, uh, you know, of, you know, diversity wherever you are. I mean, it's, it's just something that, you know, as, it's been a critical part of my life for so long and and I certainly can see the benefit for lots of people. So yeah, it's out October 26th. It's got lots of great recipes, lots of jobs, lots of gardening know-how and it'll make, you know, a great Christmas present. If we weren't in lockdown, I'd be kind of out there touring it all around regional Australia. But in this instance, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of doing that. And, um, you know, and it's been a weird year for my kids and my wife. And yeah. so we just, we're kind of like drawing up the wagons and just making sure everyone's happy and healthy at home. Uh, and then, yeah, maybe early 2022. And if we're back to some level of normal, I'll, uh, I'll take it out on the road. Cause it's, you know, uh, it's such a, a privilege to be able to go out in re- in particular in regional Australia, but, um, but, uh, be able to, you know, meet people and learn from them and see what their gardens are doing and learn recipes from them and see what different communities are doing in this space. It's, it's such an interesting and dynamic and heart filled place that I just, I love being a part of it. Awesome. Mate. Thank you so much. It's always an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Ah, um, life's good on the South Likewise, Coast. Glad mate. to hear yours is. Yep. Awesome, mate. Thank <laughs> Thanks you. so I much for you, your time. You probably need to like give your ears a rest after that. Sorry about that, mate. <laughs> no, it's good. <laughs> All good. Thanks, Paul. Hello, dear listeners. Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Food Fight. If you want to get in touch with us, it's at The Food Fight Podcast on Instagram or The Food Fight Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and we want to talk to you. Please leave us a five star review on iTunes. That really helps. If you want to hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or at quicksandfood on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Simon, it's Simon underscore Evans underscore TBD on Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you again with another episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin. While the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.